This is the Rationable Podcast, a show that helps you fact-check your world. I'm your host, Abhijit. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Rationable interviews actually today we're going to be talking to someone very very special somebody i've been trying to get on for a very long time and unfortunately my schedule has been absolutely nuts but i'm really glad to say that dr abby phillips is finally with us here he is a biliary specialist um and a doctor he's been on covid duty all this time so we really thank him for all the good work he's been doing and he's been taking the time out to spread a lot of good science-based information on Twitter for everyone to benefit from. So, Dr. Phillips, welcome and thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you for uh, having me. It's a pleasure. And uh, we've got a lot to get into right now. So, uh, But first, I just want you to tell us who you are, what you do, what are your qualifications and what you've done in the fields of uh, research regarding Ayurveda and herbal medicine, et cetera? Yeah, uh, so I am um, uh, basically a hepatologist, uh, a liver disease specialist, and I have done my training from uh, St. John's Medical College in Bangalore, then uh, Nilratan Sarkar Medical College in Calcutta, and finally, Institute of Liver and Biliary Sciences in New Delhi, where I did my uh, DM in uh, hepatology and liver transplant medicine. I am currently a senior consultant uh, of uh, clinical hepatology and translational hepatology at Rajagiri Hospital at Alua in uh, Kerala. And I am I have been practicing uh, uh, as a consultant since last uh, uh, six to seven years. And my focus and area of interest is specifically uh, alcohol-related liver disease and drug-induced liver injury, uh, because of which I do a lot of uh, basic sciences as well as clinical work on uh, herbal uh, supplements related liver which is why I have been uh, publishing a lot of work on uh, Ayurveda herbal related uh, liver injury. I see. So, are you were you when you was getting into this, were you uh, focused on trying to find new treatments from herbal and Ayurvedic resources? Um, uh, actually, this was uh, what I would call serendipity because my uh, I, my actual um, interest was alcoholic liver disease and Kerala is very well known for alcoholic liver disease. And uh, what I was planning to do was, uh, I do a lot of work on gut microbiota, which is basically you modulate the intestinal bacteria to improve clinical outcomes in liver disease. We do that by something known as stool transplant. So that was my interest. But in, when I joined my unit uh, a few years back, uh, I found out that a lot of patients actually came to me with acute hepatitis where there is actually jaundice followed by, you know, abnormal liver function test for which there is, there was no known cause that we could actually find. For example, they were not consuming alcohol. They were not on any other prescription medicines like antibiotics, painkillers, which would also, also cause uh, a liver injury. And uh, they were actually not having any other additional diseases like, you know, autoimmune hepatitis or Wilson's disease, which are also causes for acute hepatitis. So once we identified this particular group where there were no causes for liver disease, acute hepatitis, we, you know, I, I actually started discussing more on their history with them and found out that most of these, almost all of these patients were actually on herbal and dietary supplements and Ayurvedic and Yunani and Siddha medicines in the preceding three months. 
and they were taking these medicines for you know diabetes thyroid disease obesity weight loss weight gain and a lot of stuff including uh, you know gas trouble and everything and somewhere on these medicines for a very long time you know more than 3 months and there was this temporal relationship where the start of this medicine actually led to the start of the event that is the jaundice and everything in that patient so this is known as uh, uh, what we actually clinically diagnose as drug induced liver injury because all other causes are ruled out and there is a temporal association so we went ahead and did biopsies of the liver of these patients and after consent and found out that uh, these biopsies actually had a mixture of lot of different findings so it's if it's alcohol related liver injury you'll have a signature finding if it is viral hepatitis hepatitis b or hepatitis a you will have a signature finding uh, you can actually see the virus also inside the liver cells but none of that was there in these in these patients liver biopsies it was all mixed and mixed type of liver injuries where you can actually see some liver disease patterns of autoimmune liver disease some patterns of viral liver disease some patterns of alcoholic liver disease so mixed and match the pathologist was actually quite uh, uh you know dumbfounded because uh, she did not know how to report it then what we did was we actually analyzed the uh, drug samples that they were on and found out lot of the samples had contaminants adulterants pesticides insecticides modern medicines which were all actually liver toxic and some actually contain herbs that are known to cause liver damage so this is how we actually identified liver injury due to ayurvedic herbals and we published this data in 2017 2018 in the indian journal of gastroenterology on which an editorial has also been written and uh, this actually uh, got me the national award for best paper from the indian society of gastroenterology in 2019 so this was the first paper that actually uh, showed that there is a relationship with ayurvedic herbals and that herbal does not mean safe herbal drugs because they are natural it does not mean safe it is actually maybe much much more worse than what we actually see in prescription medicines and this can actually harm the liver Oh my goodness that is pretty extreme what are the, what would be some of the uh, the primary herbs and uh, ingredients that would be harming your liver in a lot of these preparations are there some common so factors it, in them yeah so uh, if we look at this uh, herb induced liver injury which is known as kili kli herb induced liver injury we have a lot of data from uh, traditional chinese medicine because they use it right left and center for even the routine practice and uh, they have specific uh, herbs that can actually cause liver injury and it's been documented but for us in ayurvedic uh, practice we have never actually looked into uh, clinical benefits of any of these herbs which is why we don't know the adverse events also so what i have seen and what we have published mostly in our data uh, we have had patients on uh, giloy uh, ashwagandha um, we have had patients on aloe vera we have had patients on turmeric which has caused something known as autoimmune uh, liver injury and uh, the biggest issue is that all of these patients actually they they consume uh, multiple herbs it's not a single herb that we can actually pinpoint so it's all multi herbal products so all of these herbs will have interactions with each other interactions within the human system and this is actually what is uh, promoting liver injury so we don't know what metabolites actually cause uh, this type of liver injury but we do have a small uh, idea on the type of metabolites that are found inside the uh, drug because we have analyzed all the drugs and we have identified a lot of plant chemicals not as phytochemicals or phytosterols which can actually harm the liver and uh, it's not a single agent it's multiple agents together in tandem causing harm 
Wow. You are blowing my mind right now. And this is one of the reasons why I avoided having in-depth conversations with you earlier because I knew you would be blowing my mind during this interview and I wanted it to be live. Um, but you mentioned a lot of the things that are being prescribed nowadays, especially like ashwagandha and giloy. And have these specifically been found to injure the liver directly? Or is there a, I mean, do you think it's one of the other ingredients that go along with this, like say with Chaman Prash or with, uh, well, any, I mean, I've seen shops with big bottles of Giloy being, you know, sold uh, left, right and center with nothing else mixed in. There are, Giloy is filling the, um, you know, Amazon stores with juices of different varieties mixed in with a whole bunch of different things. Turmeric, of course, is something that everybody has been recommended, have turmeric milk, have hot turmeric milk, to, uh, you know, to reduce inflammation and to avoid getting COVID and things like that. So these are the three major ingredients that I think are really making their rounds these days. And do you think people are in genuine danger, even if they're consuming these singular supplements separately? Or do you think it's more of the combined effect? Yeah, so uh, in that sense, I think we'll have to discuss a very important point, which is known as types of liver injury. So we mm -hmm. have two types of liver injuries, basically. Uh, one is known as dose-dependent. And if a classical example is paracetamol. So if you have paracetamol, beyond a particular uh, cutoff, that is more than 8 to 10 grams, one shot, that actually can cause liver injury and can lead to liver failure. And lower doses of paracetamol, somewhere around 4 to 6 grams, is harmful in a patient who actually has an underlying liver disease. So this is dose dependent. So if you consume it within the dose, it does not harm you. But if you consume it mm. above a particular threshold, it harms you. That is dose dependent. So there are other drugs which can actually uh, cause harm without, you know, it's independent of the dose. Like you take a single drug or a single tablet or a single dose, whatever dose it is, it can act harm you. This is not a theosyncratic liver injury. So this is a very dangerous because anybody can develop any type of liver injury with that particular single drug exposure. And this is very classically seen with painkillers. So if you look at the older version of painkillers like, you know, diclofenac and nimusulide, which are actually not, not, should not be available in the market, but it is still available. Those painkillers can actually cause liver injury if you take a single dose. Unfortunately, all of the Ayurvedic herbals are idiosyncratic because we have not done any studies on any of these herbals in the right method to actually identify what doses are good for us or what is beneficial or what doses are actually harmful. Most of these patients actually take these uh, multi-herbal drugs over you know few weeks or few months and there is no regulation in whatever doses they're consuming. One Vaidya might say take three teaspoons per day. One Vaidya might say take five teaspoons per day. But that is how it goes because there is no regulation. They don't know what they're doing. And this actually can cause idiosyncratic liver injury. And if you ask me anything which is unknown that can actually promote or cause a liver injury in the idiosyncratic manner, stay away from it because that can actually lead to liver transplants. This is very important because I've had three patients consuming Giloy and Ashwagandha together and coming with severe liver injury, jaundice, and they have actually gone into something known as drug-induced acute liver failure where they require a liver transplant to stay alive. And oh this is idiosyncratic liver injury. So you don't want to take the chance. You don't want to do something that you don't know about. The simple thing. Mm -hmm. So unless and until we have good data to show that, you know, ashwagandha within this dose for mm -hmm. this particular disease is useful, stay away from it. 
Do we have such clinical data currently available on ashwagandha? Absolutely not. Because we want to know what in ashwagandha is benefit, beneficial for you. So that particular compound or that molecule, whatever it is chemical, has to be uh, in its purified state. And it has to do benefit for the, uh, for the patient or whoever. Plus, it should have negligible side effects or tolerable side effects. Unless this is done, we don't, we don't, we don't prescribe the whole plan. You know, it's like uh, you want to have, uh, uh, you want to have a coconut. They ask you to come just let's report the whole coconut tree and uh, you know get a coconut. It's like that. I mean, that's that's not what what's going to happen. In in drugs, you have to be very focused in whatever you are prescribing, and such data is not available for any of these uh, herbs that we are using right now, right, left, and center. Uh, especially with ashwagandha, I have seen a lot of. Uh, even Western websites, even um, something like, uh, you know, there's a supplemental website. I don't remember exactly what the name was. Examine.com. Yeah, that was the one yeah. where they have cited a lot of information about ashwagandha and talking about, you know, it uh, helping increase testosterone levels, helping increase recovery after exercise. And a lot of, and so there are a lot of claims, especially when it comes to manliness for some reason. But uh, is there any actual research out there on ashwagandha that it is beneficial in any way, legitimately? So uh, there are a lot of studies on ashwagandha in the preclinical uh, evidence pool. For mm -hmm. example, a lot of studies on ashwagandha extracts in rat models and mouse models, and even very small human. Uh, uh, clinical trials which actually show that you know it actually increases uh, testosterone levels it imp improves uh, memory it's like an immunity boost and a lot of stuff but if you actually look at these uh, these trials i mean one is preclinical so we cannot directly extrapolate that to clinical scenario and second is most of the human trials done are very underpowered and they have very soft clinical endpoints and uh, it's not ideal for us to follow those endpoints to routinely use this as a practice so if you go by the levels of clinical evidence, it should be a randomized double-blind trial, and there should be meta-analysis and everything. So if you mm -hmm. look at meta-analysis of ashwagandha, uh, you don't see any good, uh, uh, what do you call high-quality data coming out of it for us to recommend ashwagandha for anything, because that none, none of that data actually exists. It's all very low-quality, high-risk, heterogeneous data that we cannot use for our clinical practice. Plus, if you look at recent developments in ashwagandha, there is a study published in Liver International, a journal called Liver International, by the United States Drug Induced Liver Injury Network and the Iceland government, uh, where they have identified multiple cases of ashwagandha induced liver injury, which is very important. About 8 to 12 cases of ashwagandha consumption leading to uh, liver injury. They have a very, very strong pharmacovigilance uh, group, which actually identifies mm -hmm. such herbal liver injuries. And this was recently published in Liver International. So this does not mean that, you know, ashwagandha is safe also. So we need really good randomized clinical trials in specific uh, disease conditions with very good clinical endpoints for us to identify anything any anything beneficial from ashwagandha, which currently mm -hmm. we don't have, which is why I don't recommend ashwagandha for uh, any disease condition. I see. And has there been uh, any have there been any studies to understand what that toxic I mean what quantity of ashwagandha dosage will actually make it toxic? Yeah, so this is very important because uh, this has not been done. No, uh, they, they would have had some extract-based studies in animals to show that there is safe at some particular level. But recent uh, data has shown that you cannot extrapolate animal safety data to humans because it's totally different. 
So we should definitely have phase three and phase four uh, clinical trials in humans to identify the extract dose and uh, frequency that is safe for us to consume. Now, another issue is that people don't consume ashwagandha uh, alone. So they actually take ashwagandha, then they take some giloy juice, they take aloe vera, they take curcumin, they take a lot of stuff along with it. It comes as a package. Now, because of this, we have something known as herb-herb interaction inside the body. Because of the interaction, a metabolite might be formed. A chemical might be created inside the body, which is actually harmful. Not ashwagandha per se, not giloy per se. So to, mm-hmm. that actually gives us more data on herb-to-herb uh, interactions, which is currently lacking in most of these herbal medicines uh, studies. Okay, so we can't really say, but on, to be on the safe side, just avoid it as much as possible. Exactly. Now, turmeric. Evidence to use it, uh, there is no issue in using it, right? It's safe and mm. there is evidence to use it. Absolutely. I'll prescribe. If there is any mm. evidence or uh, any, any safety issues, are, of course, why not? Okay. And what, if, uh, uh, and what about turmeric? Because turmeric is something that most people think is perfectly harmless in any quantity so to speak, within reason. Um, and a lot of people swear by it. I have been, uh, I have been uh, prescribed turmeric for different conditions when, you know, from doctors. And uh, from what I have understood from it, first of all, its bioavailability is next to, is very, is negligible, but it can be increased with the inclusion of pepper uh, in, in the mixture. And it does seem to have a lot of effects on inflammation. But from what you're saying, all of this information is still from preclinical trials. And we can't really understand what it is, what effect it has in humans, or has it actually been tested to any extent in humans? Yeah, so uh, turmeric as a whole uh, has absolutely no value to be used as a medicine. We have to use is what is actually bioactive inside the turmeric, which is actually curcumin or curcuminoid, which is a group of compounds inside tur- uh, turmeric, which actually has this anti-inflammatory uh, potential and everything. So w- what people do is they actually take the whole turmeric, they mix it with do- uh, milk, make it uh, you know healthy, dude or turmeric milk, and they drink it, saying that it's going to help them. Actually, it doesn't. Because whatever turmeric they're using directly, drinking it, it doesn't get absorbed in the body. It's wasted. Mm. So there is no effect of turmeric if you mix it and directly consume it because it is not, not going to get absorbed. This is exactly why we say there is no bioavailability. It's very poor, very poorly absorbed. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, if you mix uh, turmeric within milk or water and then just drink it directly, it does mm-hmm. not enter your body because it gets destroyed uh, in the stomach because of the acids and the digestive enzymes. This is why we mm-hmm. say there is no bioavailability. So haldi dood and haldi turmeric milk and everything is actually it's just marketing tactics. It doesn't help you at all. Which is why we actually mix something with uh, turmeric like pepper or a nano emulsion form, which actually bypasses the stomach and gets absorbed in the small intestine. That is how it gets absorbed. That is why we have cumin formulations. We make uh, different formulations like nano emulsions and nanolipid formulations, which can actually bypass the stomach and get absorbed in the intestine. So curcumin is the active component. Now, a uh, lot of studies like you have mentioned preclinical in uh, on curcumin show anti-inflammatory septic water. You name it, the properties there for that uh, molecule. But these are all in animal models and it actually cannot be extrapolated to humans. There is one condition where they have shown that there is some uh, uh, good benefit of curcumin against placebo 
in osteoarthritis, degenerative disease of the bone. And also some effect of curcumin in a condition known as uh, inflammatory bowel disease, where you have severe ulcerations of the small intestine. And uh, curcumin usually helps patients, if they're on standard of care, it actually helps patients maintain the remission. That's it. There is some good data on it, but it is still not uh, recommended for routine practice because the problem with curcumin or turmeric is that it has dose-dependent toxicity. And this has actually been uh, found in animal models. We don't have good human data. where they have shown that if you increase curcumin levels or turmeric levels in rats, it actually causes liver injury. I myself had patients who were on uh, you know, a few weeks of daily curcumin to boost their immunity during COVID. And they have come up with something known as autoimmune liver disease, where you know, curcumin is actually inflammatory, anti-inflammatory, and it actually modulates your, uh, uh, your, modulates your immune system also. So mm -hmm. once that immune system gets badly modulated, we call it disrupt happens is that your immune system can actually attacking your organs. And this is what we, what we call as, and we have had patients with consumption of turmeric developing autoimmune liver disease for which we had to put them on steroids so that their immune system are immune system is actually brought down and they, their uh, liver injury has been uh, salvaged. And this happens. This is real. So unless and until we have good data, clear-cut data on dose, frequency and everything, even curcumin is currently not to be used for any diseases. Oh my goodness. This is, it's a lot worse than I, than I expected. <laughs> I actually was trying to... Um... It's truth. Yeah, no, I know. I, I, when I was, I was writing an article about turmeric a, uh, a year or so ago, and the essential conclusion was that we just don't know what kind of an effect it has. But at that point of time, I had no idea about this specific side effect, which I think is probably the crux. Like, the, like all of medicine is all risk versus benefit. And if the benefit is questionable with an extremely high risk, which is... I mean, but which I mean, there's a chance of a that side effect without actually knowing exactly what dosage that side effect might kick in with. I mean, it's just safer to stay away from that medicine. I guess it's just exactly. it's, uh, exactly. it's just yeah. That's why we I, push for evidence-based medicine, no, and not eminence-based medicine or faith-based medicine. Absolutely. Uh, speaking of which, <laughs> the current state of Ayurveda, I'm saying on the la on you know on, on the large scale that you have probably encountered, do you think that actually goes back to the Ayurvedic texts and doctrines? Are they prepared from that, or are people just playing around with stuff and doing whatever? Like you had mentioned, Live Fifty Two a couple of days back on Twitter. And that actually also blew my mind because Live Fifty Two is also something that, I have known from the time I was a kid, like that if you have a liver problem, if you have jaundice, you are chugging live 52s all day long. Uh, it was prescribed to my dog when he had uh, infant jaundice. Um, that was many years ago, of course, he's passed away from other dis un unfortunate problems. But uh, my brother also swore by it when back in his party days where he was coming back you know, when he was partying a lot, he was like, live 52 will save me from it. Um, of course, I've gotten to know better over the years that it probably doesn't have much um, value, especially since it's not an Ayurvedic product per se, but it is a proprietary product that Himalaya has come up with just by themselves. And somehow it's become ubiquitous in the market. So could you speak to, first of all, 
if 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 you know how much of the ayurvedic products in the market today are actually ayurvedic formulas and how many of them are just proprietary herbal concoctions that companies are making so uh, so the ayurvedic formulations are uh, basically classical formulations and proprietary formulations uh, the classical formulations are based on classical text for example chandprash or uh, dashamularishta these are all classical formulations proprietary formulations are actually pharma driven you know they decide some combinations and then they market it for some specific uh, disease example is leaf 52 or uh, coronal by uh, patanjali and what happens is that they don't actually follow any classical text they just uh, pick and you know cherry pick few herbs with some uh, some uh, benefits which is written in the classical text and they manufacture it and then they put it as an ayurvedic proprietary product now because it's ayurvedic it does not require any uh, standard trials to be done on it because it's you know they say that it's there in the text a few of this stuff is from the text and you don't need to run any trials on it and they have directly marketed so most of these products are like that so leaf 52 if you if you look at leaf 52 as a classical example uh, they have actually done trials on it or so they claim uh, if you look at the trials from 1955 till now i mean that's decades you don't see any quality human clinical trial in that absolutely none not a single powered randomized double blind control trial not a single meta analysis of these trials not a single systematic review of these trials nothing most of their trials are either in rats or guinea pigs or in the test tube and they actually showcase that and say that we have done almost 300 uh, uh, studies on this particular molecule and it is found good for this particular stuff so please prescribe it and this is classical low evidence high marketing strategy and lot of people actually fall for it because they see uh, all the scientific terms associated with leaf 52 like you know it's anti inflammatory reduces oxidative stress it prevents uh, liver injury increases liver regeneration you know these are the words that they have used for their marketing strategy mm-hmm. and people actually fall for it physicians fall for it and that is how you write it but if you ask me directly is there any role for leaf 52 or any disease per se in 2021 absolutely none because they still have to do a lot more trials on it. oh my goodness well yes i'm i'm quite sure i and do, speaking of which do you think that some ayurvedic prefer, uh, preparations could show clinical promise if uh, and become a part of modern medicine if they were studied rigorously ethically and honestly i i feel that i mean if you follow the principles of ayurveda to test a particular product or a herb it will not work mm-hmm. because ayurveda principles are basically pseudo scientific principles because ayurveda still looks at healing energy looks at you know uh, aligning vata pitta kapha and everything it actually does yeah. not make any sense in the physiological aspect of a human disease so if you follow the ayurvedic principles i don't think we can get anywhere because you cannot test pseudo science you cannot falsify it it's very difficult but if you look at the examples of uh, say uh, artemisin which is an anti malarial or uh, take an example of uh, reserpine which is an anti hypertensive these are all uh, taken from a traditional medicine text and what they did was uh, you have a herb and you identify the bioactive component in it and you test the bioactive component in its pure form and then you see for benefits and adverse events for example if you look at uh, artemisin so you don't give the whole artemisia plant to treat malaria 
you take the artemisinin derivative and give and it is very safe it is effective which is why it is it is one of the most important treatments in malaria now if you look at reserpine which is taken from sarpaganda indian snake root so if you give the whole root to a patient it actually causes a lot of side effects including depression mental illness and lot of stuff but if you take reserpine out of sarpaganda and use it specifically for you know uh, hypertension blood high blood pressure it works for hypertension mild to moderate but still long term use is not advocated because it has its side effects that is why we don't use reserpine in our current practice anymore even though ayurvedic still use it modern medicine has actually dumped reserpine in one corner because we have other safer better alternatives for treating high blood pressure and this is how science works so ayurveda is stuck in a time and it is it is it doesn't it doesn't move out of that circle now it cannot move out because its principles are pseudo science so what we should do is we should actually break open that cycle circle and actually test these herbs for bioactive components put them into research and then take it forward so that actually becomes ayurveda's uh, contribution to some extent if you actually look at it and this is how traditional chinese medicine has helped us identify uh, drugs for uh, malaria and we can still do it but the problem is you should shed your pseudo scientific thoughts and that's the only way forward that is so true and i've got, actually got uh, uh, i think you know i have shared this document with you which is basically baba ramdev's questions to allopathy and the pharma industry and high blood pressure is actually one of the things that he cited so i'll share i've shared the document with you i think if you could put this answer in there that would be very helpful especially I'll do because that. i think that that would really kind of you know round out the perspective that i and he's i think he's trying to get to the point that you don't have a cure but that doesn't mean that <laughs> that means that ayurveda has it might not be a cure it's a treatment it is something that keeps things stable and keeps and uh, you know keeps people healthy on the whole so they can live a normal life to the greatest extent possible but that doesn't mean ayurveda has all the answers either just i think that's what he's trying to get at um as speaking of which there has been um of course coronel is you know it's the bane of our lives right now uh and there are more coming beyond that but i had one question about coronel i had written i've written extensively not extensively but i've done a basic overview of coronel and you know what possible studies each one of the ingredients would have as related to infectious diseases like covid and of course none of them really do first of all have you seen the uh, the so called trial that they've come out with i think they did come out with it and uh, of course have been trying to say that this is finally a clinically tested clinically proven medicine which it isn't i've heard that the trial has a lot of flaws in it but uh, could you speak to that have you looked through that right yeah actually i i did a, a complete thread write up on the trial uh, on mm-hmm. coronel where uh, and it was published in this journal called phytomedicine if i'm not mistaken it's an alternative medicine journal and the yeah. issue with coronel study is that one they have chosen patients who can actually get better without coronel or any medicine for that matter so they have chosen asymptomatic patients and mild group of patients who do not require any treatment if you look at any of the covid guidelines you'll say that uh, you'll see that these patients do not require any drugs they just require mm-hmm. simple symptomatic care so they have chosen the right group to showcase their positive finding so this is cherry picking so they have already decided that these are the groups that they will treat so that there is definitely a positive outcome number one that is a bias 
Number two is that uh, they have actually uh, given endpoints, which are, you know, you can manipulate. It. And most of their endpoints are actually investigation endpoints. They are not clinical endpoints. So we want to know how many of these patients who had mild COVID developed moderate COVID or severe COVID. And uh, how many of them actually landed up in an ICU or how many of them actually had to take oxygen at home or whatever. And such endpoints are not there in that study. So they have just looked at you know, negative PCR and you know, high interleukin and no, normal CRP levels and some blood investigations, which don't make sense in the real world. But it is easily manipulated. You can actually manipulate those endpoints very well. And you can actually showcase your positive your positive outcome, which you already prepared in your head. So this is why that study is biased, because that study does not give us any real value to treat a patient in the real world uh, clinically. So if you go by that study, yes, it is peer-reviewed and published in a third-rate uh, alternative medicine journal, which will come up on PubMed. But that doesn't mean that that study is actually quality, because you can see a lot of junk on PubMed including Chinese traditional healers destroying cancer cells using the force. It's published. Oh, God. Really? So don't think uh, PubMed is your uh, to-go place because PubMed has a lot of trap in it. A lot of nonsense has been published. And it is up to the, uh, the reasonable or a logical physician to identify what is good for his patient and not. And I think everybody should have some scientific temper uh, in analyzing uh, data in that, in that manner, which is good for the patient also. Absolutely. Uh, I did also hear that there is a possibility of a steroid which was included in coronel. Uh, so apparently, it's a constituent of Tenaspora cardifolia, I think, if I'm pronouncing that properly, uh, which is one of the ingredients in the in the coronel medical thing in Giloy, apparently. Uh, mm -hmm. No, that is, sorry, that is the Latin name for Giloy, my bad. But apparently, Giloy does contain some steroids. Uh, is that of relevance to uh, or of danger to us? Yeah, so, uh, just like how we have uh, steroids in our body. Uh, mm -hmm. Even plants have steroids. So, they are phytosteroids, steroids of plant origin, which can actually work the same way steroids work in a human body. For example, we have pregnisolone or methylpregnisolone. We have hydrocortisone. Even these plant steroids have the same uh, uh, effect on a human body. So okay. plant steroids itself, they have a huge potential to modulate our immune system or decrease inflammation. And mm -hmm. that is why we require a particular steroid component which is going to be safe and effective for us to use and not the whole plant. Because the whole plant might contain actually other steroid groups also which might be harmful for us. So, which is why we actually see a lot, I mean, endocrinologists see a lot of patients who are on herbal medicines for a few months or a few years, and they actually develop uh, steroid toxicity. They uh, gain weight, they develop something known as Cushingoid phases, which is all part of steroid toxicity, adverse effects associated with long-term steroid consumption. And if you look at their medications, no, no steroids are there, only herbal products are there. But herbal products do contain steroids, either adulterated or plant-derived, it can actually harm you. So this, this is very important, yeah. Um, and uh, speaking of coronal and other COVID treatments, I uh, did read uh, one of uh, one of our listeners has actually sent in one of these uh, messages that we get on WhatsApp that says that um, the 
research suggests ayurved and siddh medicines help coming help in coming out of covid faster and also keep the immunity strong we've heard that a lot a pivotal research study by a frankfurt biotechnology innovation center called fizz <laughs> found that kabasura pudinir has the strongest inhibitor 84% of spike glycoprotein in coronavirus strains in restricting entry of virus into cells and this of course has been going around all over the place it seems that it has been promoted by shri shri ravi shankar and shri shri tatta.com art of living will get a discount and uh, of course it contains turmeric amrut kabasur kudinir shakti drops tulsi arka and uh, probably other things as well and one of uh, the listeners was also asking about the effective effectiveness of kabasura kudinir and others like moringa and ashwagandha ashwagandha we've already spoken about and should we take them as a part of our in a part of our day, daily lives can they be taken as supplements so this is i know it's a big question first of all about its effect on covid and secondly on general health especially with this kabasura kudinir or whatever it is yeah so uh, kabasura kudinir is actually from siddha that's a mm. siddha uh, related uh, drug which has been heavily promoted in tamil nadu by the government even cops were handing out kabasura kudinir drinks to pedestrians at some point during the covid outbreak last year there are pictures mm. of it on the net now uh, if you look at the study that particular study that he has mentioned from that fis institute it's actually a in silico study it's a computational study where they have actually shown that a lot of these uh, uh, herbal products and they have actually done docking simulation using a computer to show that one of these products can actually uh, you know act against the spike protein much better this has absolutely no value in our real life scenario because docking studies molecular studies come at the bottom below the bottom level of evidence generation these are just proof of concept and if you look at the kabasura kundiri study which the newspapers quote magazines quote evening daily quote but none of the peer reviewed publications actually quote uh, they are actually pharma driven or government driven or maybe media driven kind of uh, studies it, it has absolutely no no clinical studies done on uh, kabasura kundiri to show that it has any effect on immunity or covid for that matter this is just just complete bonkers of uh, you know they have made complete bonkers out of the general population and this is going on in whatsapp and facebook and also it has been sold by multiple uh, pharma outlets ayurvedic pharma outlets and this is just you know uh, reducing the wallet size and nothing else now kabasura kudinir it seems that there was a study done which i could not find on the internet but i did find a lot of preclinical and these molecular docking studies on it on covid and other things but it has if you ask me would i i mean i i would want to prescribe something that is useful for my patients mm-hmm. that is what i want because i i have to take care of my patients and if kabasura kudinir actually does something for my patients i'll prescribe it but i don't see any evidence for me to prescribe kabasura kudinir anywhere on the internet or in or in any clinical repository and this is absolutely nuts i don't think people should go for kabasura kudinir especially uh, i have actually analyzed a kabasura kudinir uh, drug and this is actually been tweeted by me that i have actually found out that kabasura kudinir from different companies when we actually looked at it it was heavily contaminated with modern medicines including steroids 
maybe that's oh. why it is actually acting on the immune system. You know, it actually mm-hmm. contains steroids, and that too, classical modern medicine steroids, not even plant steroids, and heavily contaminated. And this is why maybe, and that patient who has actually taken it uh, landed up with liver injury and underwent a liver transplant uh, last year. And I've actually uh, uh, tweeted about this also. If you look at these cabocerecutinir uh, uh, drugs from different companies all over, I'm sure we'll find a lot of contaminants and a lot of adulterants because of which they seem to act on the human body. But it is dangerous, and I do not, uh, I do not recommend taking cabocerecutinir not just for COVID, for anything. Okay, and what about moringa? Yeah, moringa is also one of those pet uh, Ayurvedic uh, herbs which has a lot of preclinical data. You know, you can actually you, you can just blindly uh, touch one anti-inflammatory, anti-parasitic, anti-aseptic, anything, Moringa will come in there. You know, it's it's all over the place, just like your, uh, your curcumin and ashwagandha. It works from brain to toe. It, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's that kind of a thing. If you look at Moringa, no quality studies, some preclinical studies, some molecular docking studies, that's it. If you want to use Moringa, use it in your curries. I think people put it in sambar and it's actually quite tasty. And same with turmeric, I think we yeah. <laughs> get along very well with that. Because these and, are uh, recipes. Yeah. Speaking of spices, there's another one which is uh, a lot of people are recommended clove for respiratory issues, chemically. Uh, some people have seen it work on sore throats and dry coughs and stuff like that. Does clove have any beneficial effects other than its cooling or warming? If, effect if look, yeah, if we look at any of these spices for that matter, cloves or ginger or cardamom, whatever, they will definitely have some bioactive compound which has some effect in the body. I mean, that does not mean they are medicines. Uh, they are they are food flavoring items. And if you test them in preclinical conditions in a test tube on cells, you will see some changes here and there. That does not mean that you have to use it as a medicine directly for uh, cold and cough. And uh, the biggest issue is for us to use any of this because even without using any of this, it will get better. I don't think anybody in the US or in the Europe or in Australia or in the New Zealand actually do steaming clove and uh, cardamom and ginger for their colds. I don't think so. And still their cold is okay. Their diseases go away. These are all self-limiting diseases. And using these traditional practices does not mean that they are helping. It means that you can actually do even without it and get better. Mm-hmm. That's what that's that's what the whole clinical trial scenario will tell us. But that has not been done in any of these uh, spices for that matter. Wonderful. Um, okay, one last one on uh, on Ayurveda and maybe well, alternative medicine. Um, because we're running out of time, so we'll just you know power through the next couple of questions. Uh, first of all, could you shed some light on alum water and how it works, if it works? So alum water, personally, I have not had any patients uh, consuming it. I've not had anybody you know taking it and coming to me with any issues. So my experience in discussing that is not 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 much uh, about alum water. Mm-hmm. But I'm not, I, I think it is mostly to do with marketing, if you ask me. Alkaline water, what they say. And it's a yeah. lot to do with marketing. If you look at the clinical benefits, even though you can actually see a lot of preclinical effects of alkaline water, I don't think it can be translated clinically. Because we don't have any data to show that, that there is evidence that alkaline water is good for anything. This is, my, this is what I feel. Just like any other yeah. uh, uh, alternative therapy that we actually come across. Yeah, I've recently written about alkaline water. There's a new one in the market called Evocus, 
which uh, which has been which is almost in every convenience store that I could find. I've actually got a bottle of it. I'm going to be shooting a video about that this week and tasting it okay. for once. <laughs> but I've also tried to look up look up all its benefits or if at all. And essentially, it's an extremely expensive antacid, which is also probably not as effective as a much cheaper digene. So exactly. <laughs> it's against just, it. just marketing, yeah, just marketing. Yeah, and this they've all they say in multiple places on the packaging they say there's seventy plus minerals, but they don't mention any of them in the ingredients list, which is very suspicious. Which is yeah, mislabeling. Yeah. They just say yeah. it won't be there. So if you if you look at this ashwagandha extract that you are getting or buying from yeah. the market, they'll write ashwagandha extract, and most of them won't even contain ashwagandha. It may be chalk oh powder goodness. for that. Matter. Yeah. Oh, when you're not just that, there's no regulation. There's no oversight that we have uh, in this country at all. But is there is there a way for, you know, is there a way to make it at least give some legal weight to people like us who are opposing uh, unscientific treatments and that are actually putting people in harm's way? Is there any way that we can sue or at least have some legal repercussions for people who are producing this stuff? I mean, uh, the, the the whole issue is with the regulatory framework. Because mm. it's Ayurveda, it has been tested and it has been there in this country for thousands of years. Uh, they believe that, you know, it does not cause harm. So uh, mm. that's, that's like appeal to faith and appeal to nature yeah. because it's herbal and it's safe. So we have to actually take that particular uh, legality out of the equation. And then mm. if somebody, for example, Sri Tattwa or uh, Patanjali or Himalaya, if they are promoting a drug for a particular disease condition, it has to undergo the same stringent methodological evaluation that we do for our prescription drugs. It has to. This has to be made mandatory. But this is not the current scenario. The current scenario is anything Ayurvedic proprietary means you can bypass any of that because it's already been written. It is considered safe and you please market it directly. All you need to do is show that the factories that this has been made is clean. That is your GMP. That's oh it. So you can actually make poison in a GMP setting and sell it. That's what the government uh, says. So well, this I, is, I, that's, what, that's what they're doing actually in some exactly. cases. So it's, it's, it's basically poison made very cleanly for your consumption. And that is not what we are going to do for healthcare. And once this 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 uh, particular uh, legal term is broken down, and you know everything must be tested in the right way because it's being promoted as a healthcare, even though they don't mention that as a medicinal product. They mention that this is for non-medical purposes, Ayurvedic proprietary product for health supplement. They say so. The moment you say yeah. health supplement, it does not come under the drugs regulation, and this has to be broken. Only then we can take it forward. Absolutely. And in fact, there was this guy, I read the story on the print of a person who has created some random concoction along with eye drops in Andhra Pradesh. And now the state no. is going to support manufacturing it for him. I'm, I'm just, I'm speechless. It just blows my mind that that is even possible. I could make whatever the hell I want to. I could mix shampoo and soap and put it in a pill form and dry it out and sell it to people saying, you know, just have two pills of this a day and your diarrhea will be cured. Yeah, but and then you'd have to put it. a herb in that. You'll have to put a herb oh. in that. And that becomes Ayurvedic proprietary medicine. I'll put some dhania in there to make it taste good. <laughs> uh, okay, okay. One last thing I really wanted to touch on because this is something that I felt was very intriguing. I just read the thread, but I am unfortunately not 
that clinical scientifically literate to be able to really understand all the nuance in it. Two DG that has been produced by the DRDO. It has already become famous on WhatsApp University. People are you know craving for it, dying for it. A sachet is now over nine hundred rupees, almost a thousand rupees. So what is two G two DG? What is it supposed to do, and does it do anything at all? Yeah, so uh, 2DG is quite interesting because uh, this is almost 50, 70 year old molecule. It's not a new guy. It's been there for a long time, just lying in a corner. And multiple studies done on 2DG for multiple other disease conditions, for example, as an anti cancer agent, uh, even as an anti influenza viral agent uh, in 1970s and 1950s, long back, showed that uh, 2DG actually has no uh, clinical benefit when it comes to the real deal. And uh, this medicine is basically 2DG's glucose where they have uh, substituted a hydroxyl group. So it's like a glucose mimetic. You know, it, it, it acts like glucose, but what it does is it does not go through all the uh, pathways of glucose inside the body. It basically breaks one of the metabolic pathways which uses glucose. So there is something known as glycolytic pathway. So if you give 2DG, all the cells that are using uh, glucose as their energy source, uh, they, their energy source gets blocked because 2DG is not actually glucose. It's a glucose mm -hmm. mimetic. And that is why it was initially used for cancer treatment because they found they thought that if you give 2DG, cancer cells use a lot of glucose. So if, if you give 2DG, the glucose consumption will be cut down and you can actually kill the cancer cells. But actually that did not happen in, in the real thing because there are other cells in the body that actually use glucose too. And that is the brain and the heart. So if yeah. you give 2DG, it can actually cause problems in those two systems also. And uh, some studies actually showed that. So it is, not, it is not used as any therapeutic value. It is usually given in research uh, settings or as a, a, a diagnostic molecule. Now this 2DG, some, somebody somewhere down the line uh, reviewed data on COVID and said that, you know, these viruses also uses a lot of glucose. And that is why the, the disease actually becomes bad. So these guys decided to use 2DG in that aspect. And this is not the first time 2DG has been used in a viral disease. It's been used previously and it has failed. Now, Dr. Reddy's and DRDO has done this study saying that 2DG actually works in severe cold. Now, recently, data has come out from that particular study where they have used, like I said, like the, this is like the modern medicine counterpart of coronal, the 2DG. Uh, it's exactly like that. It is exactly like that. It's not a, a saffron-clad charlatan who's doing it. It's proper pharma companies with the defense department doing it. But it is yeah. coronal for the modern man. That's it. And uh, they have identified that uh, 2DG uh, works in COVID. But if you look at the study, highly flawed, very, very subtle endpoints, no clinical endpoints. And it has actually been prescribed for patients with critical COVID, even though the study actually looked at moderate COVID. So a lot of data in the dark, no publication, no peer review, no preprint, nothing. And if you actually look at the history of 2DG, it does not work for any infectious diseases. And it is a highly marketed product. And I'm, I'm sure the company will uh, reap the benefits, not the patients. Oh, man, we are in so much trouble. It's heartbreaking, really. <laughs> but uh, just to tell people that, you know, the priority is that if you have mild COVID, you just need crocine to manage your fever. That's it. That's all you can do. And if you have anything slightly more severe than that, if you're 
blood oxygen levels are dropping call your doctor don't just take medicines you see off you know whatsapp or whatever it is or what the rumor mills are spitting out or what the media is spitting out remdesivir does next to nothing uh plasma has now been taken off the board but plasma also plasma transfusions don't do anything so just please just go to your doctor and don't self medicate that is the most important thing stop taking all the ayurvedic supplements stop taking all the steroids that people are saying that you have to take do not take it if you are mild because that is the kind of stuff that leads to black fungus infections because then that down regulates your immune system and it just leaves you open to other infections that you could get while you should be focusing on recovering from covid exactly. so it just blows my mind but um there is a there's tons more that i could definitely talk to you about and there are things that we had said we had planned on discussing but i think we leave that here right now i'd love to have you back but thank you so much for clearing up all these questions i think i'm going to have to break this video into a couple of parts and kind of share it in different ways i'll of course i'll have a full version up on my podcast and on my youtube channel but over time i think we have we have so much value in this video that i want to keep milking it for all its worth so thank you very much for coming on we we'll definitely have you on again uh, could you please tell people where they can get in touch with you where they can see your work where they can ask you questions yeah, so um, i'm basically uh, more active on twitter uh my uh, twitter handle is at d r a b y p h i l i p s dr at dr abi phillips i'm also on facebook but that's more of a personal space and uh, my uh, email id is uh, abi phillips at gmail.com so i'm available uh, on these two uh, social media platforms and i would love to hear uh, responses from you and thank you for having me uh, on this podcast it was it was quite uh, interesting for me to discuss with an open mind i'm so glad you came on you've uh, you've definitely cleared up a lot of doubts of my own and my uh, the listeners as well for rationable so thank you very much have a wonderful week enjoy the rest of your weekend whatever little is left of it and uh, i'll see you soon thank you very much dr okay. thank you thank you so much thank you so much for listening to the rationable podcast if you like this show please subscribe share rate it and review it on apple podcasts or spotify to make it easier for others to find it also subscribe to the rationable channel on youtube support and get involved with rationable on patreon at patreon.com/rationable for the show notes transcript references and more visit www.berationable.com meet like-minded people on the rationable conversations facebook group to get in touch write to abhijit that's a b h i j i t at berationable.com or at berationable on twitter until next time be rational